Good morning. It is very fine to be here with you all today. What a blessing. The topic that I have been assigned is free from the law. Free from the law. I will read the objective as it was given to me. In this lesson, focus specifically on the law of Moses and how God wants us to view it today. Show how we can learn valuable lessons from the Mosaic law, yet we are not to bind it upon brethren today. Talk about what a challenge Judaizing was for the early church and how it is still alive today among many who profess to follow Christ. What is the appeal of this law? And how do so many fail to see the superiority of the new covenant? Is it still being bound today? Why was it a yoke of bondage, as Peter and Paul describe it? Help us to see the value of the old while increasing our appreciation of the new in Christ Jesus. And these scriptures were assigned with the topic. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 15 and going through into chapter 5. Colossians chapter 2. And Hebrews chapters 1 through 10. That's a lot of territory to cover. We're going to endeavor to do so. However, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I, I have built into my plan here places where we can skip and go back and we'll, we'll see how it goes. And I, I encourage your comments and participation. There will be some guided discussion as we go through portions of this as well. But what we're going to attempt to do is begin with uh, Matthew chapter 5, focusing there on, in particular on verses 17 and 18, but the other related passages in that chapter as well. With a connection to that section of Matthew, we will also consider a portion of Isaiah. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, verses 5 and 6, we'll hope to look at Colossians chapter 2. We'll do some gleanings from Hebrews chapters 3, 4, 5, 8, and 10 from that 1 through 10 section. And then conclude with an overview of the book of Galatians looking at especially at 2.15 through chapter 5. So, that's our objective. We'll see how we do. Appreciate the opportunity to consider these things with you. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, especially looking at uh, verses 17. Let's, let's read um, 17 through 20. And I'm reading from the ESV. Matthew 5, starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
This chapter begins with the Sermon on the Mount, and the theme of this sermon is the Kingdom of Heaven. You can look at Matthew 4:17 as a reference point for that, and that theme just carries right on through in through chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus begins with the Beatitudes or uh, the Blesseds or the Happies, call them as you will, and these describe the the character, the blessedness of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Verses 1 through 12 in the chapter illustrate this in chapter 5. And then we have this uh, discussion of, of Christians, citizens in God's kingdom, being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, in verses 13 through 16. And then clarifying Jesus' own relationship with the law, he then stresses how our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 17 through 20. And then he follows that with a series of contrasts, which we will also look at, between the oral interpretations of the law and the conduct expected of his disciples, expected by him of his disciples. As you look at Matthew chapter 5, some points to ponder. Consider the meaning of the phrase kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven and what that is. Consider the blessedness of those in the kingdom and their relationship to the world and how our, our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What are the main points of this chapter? Here's where we're going to have some guided discussion, and I don't know how this will work, but I'm going to try it. Uh, there's a lot of questions I'll be asking, and they'll, they'll all pertain to portions of the passages that we are considering as we go through them. So when I ask the question, I'm, we're going to have our microphone men ready, and uh, first one to raise their hand gets to answer. But beginning here with the main points of this chapter, looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, what do we have here? Nobody's raising their hand yet. We ha yes, I heard it. It's the Beatitudes. I thought of just doing it this way for more rapid fire, and then I can repeat it into the microphone. That might just work better. We'll see how it goes. All right. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. 13 through 16. What is he talking about there? Salt and light. 17 through 20, which I read. What do we have? Jesus and the law in Matthew 17, 5, 17 through 20. Now I'm going to read uh, 21 through uh, 48. Starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder... And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to, he to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, here's a quick question. What is the first phrase in verse 21? You have heard it said. What is the first phrase in verse 27? You have heard it said. Look at verse 31. It was also said. And on it goes through that entire section. So what do we have here? We have the interpretations of the law versus kingdom righteousness. This is the tenor of the discussion in 21 through 48. Looking specifically at verses 3 through 12, what do the Beatitudes describe? We have here the character, the blessedness of the citizens of the kingdom. Feel free to, to go ahead and shout it out, and I'll go ahead and repeat it in for the recording. So let's just try to keep it flowing if we can. 13 through 16, how are citizens of the kingdom to relate to the world? Be the light of the world. Be the salt. We're going to talk about the salt and the light a little bit in, uh, on Friday's session as well because we want to consider our evangelistic efforts, our personal efforts in proclaiming the gospel by how we live our lives. You ha the salt has to mix with the food to have that influence, and we have to be that influence in this world. What does Jesus expect of those who would be citizens of the kingdom? Looking at verse 20. A righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now there are five subjects as you look at 21 through 48. There are five subjects whose interpretations are contrasted in this chapter. Jesus says you've heard it said and then he says something what you really need to understand about those things. What are those five subjects from the law? There. We have murder, we have adultery, uh, oaths, uh, retaliation, and love. And again, we've noted, if you look at these, uh, each of these sections, you probably have them divided up in your text, the way it's laid out on your page. At the heading, the start of each of those sections, you'll have these phrases, you've heard it said, and so forth. You have heard it said, not, uh, it is written... Not in this case. And we're going to talk about the difference between the it is written and the you have heard it said. Then he says, but I say unto you. Either, either case, well, when he says you have heard it said, he's, he's going to address the, the going understanding, the, <clears throat> the present connotation and teaching and rules that people are trying to abide by that are being given to them by their leaders. And then he's going to say, I say to you, and, and in effect, he's going to blow the bridge away. He's going to destroy that road, if it needs to be destroyed, and then put in its place the proper road for our understanding. Now, we're going to uh, look at some illustrations of this and make some application into our modern, uh, in terms of how we might use the same approach that Jesus does uh, when we hear things. So to the, you have heard it said, 
We can't say, but I say unto you, with the authority that Jesus could, but what we can do is answer the, you have heard it said, with the, it is written. And so we'll come back and look at some examples along that line uh, a little bit later. Continuing with our consideration of Matthew 5, again, we see these phrases, 21, uh, 27, 31, 33, 38, 43. We see these, these phrases, it is written, you, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And uh, we see that he is contrasting basically the, the oral traditions, the things that have been built around the law and the other traditions that they had come up with on their own. And he is then trying to clear away all of that debris and look at what they really need to understand. <clears throat> Jesus and the law. Let's talk about Jesus and the law, specifically looking at Matthew 5, 17 through 19. What does he say about his relation to the law? What was Jesus' relation to the law of Moses? He came to fulfill it. Not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. <clears throat> now up to this point, Jesus has been describing the citizens of the kingdom. He's been talking about the character and blessedness of those citizens in 5, 3 through 12. He's talked about their influence upon the world in 13 through 16. And then in this section, he's talking about the righteousness of the kingdom. The righteousness that was based on his pattern, his example, the conduct that Jesus himself performed and what he expects of his disciples. And that stood in stark contrast to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he begins by correcting any false impression that some may have had about his own relationship with the law. He had come to fulfill that law. He did not come to destroy the law and the prophets so we have to ask ourselves the question, are his teachings contradictory to the law and the prophets? And he gives us the answer to that question in 17, uh, 5, 17 through 19. He came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Now, some, maybe quite a few, thought that he intended to totally disregard and destroy the law. That his coming, that his teaching would regard the old law in a negative light. And the, that's why he uses this term and says, no, that's not what I'm doing. You think I'm coming to destroy. Vine says destroy means utterly, overthrow completely. No, that's not what I've come to do. On the contrary, his purpose was to fulfill the law and the prophets. Because what do the Law and the Prophets, who do they talk about? They talk about Him. He came not to destroy that. He came to be that, to fulfill that. We have in Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, a prophecy about the Messiah, which we will come and look at more in detail a little bit later. And we have many, many other prophecies. We have 330-some prophecies concerning Christ found in the law and the prophets. We have passages in, in Daniel. We have Daniel 2.44, for example. Jesus proclaimed that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy, or he said that it was at hand in Mark 
chapter 1, 14, and 15. They foretold the establishment of a new covenant for the people of God. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Hebrews tells us, and we'll look at some passages of Hebrews, that Jesus brought this new covenant in and he, he confirmed all of those things and fulfilled all of those things. So looking again at Matthew 5, we need to kind of get our heads into where they were, that is, the people of Jesus' day as they were receiving this teaching right then, and then we need to also understand the applications that we can make for ourselves today. Until the law and the prophets were completely fulfilled, Jesus retained this very firm, very important objective in showing that the law was as permanent as the heavens and the earth. He says that in verse 18 of Matthew 5. He said in Luke chapter 16, verse 17, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Depending on your translation, a jot or a tittle or an iota or whatever word you have there. These are, these are grammatical uh, phrasings like we might say the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I. Nothing was going to be missed. Nothing was going to be lost. Nothing was going to be left out. We are, it is still in effect, he was telling them. <clears throat> so, a person's treatment then of the Mosaic Law, while it was still in force, would that affect their standing in the kingdom of heaven? Yes, it would. And that's what he tells them in Matthew 5.19. How does he say that is so? Well, in 21 through 23... He reminds them that the kingdom of heaven has this future aspect about it. And he puts this into their minds. There's this, this coming phase of the kingdom beyond where we are now. And he puts them in mind of that. Those who lived before the coming of the kingdom, that is, as we understand, the, the church beginning on the day of Pentecost, 33 A.D., those who lived prior to that time, those who died prior to that time, could still be in the kingdom in the future sense. Note what is said about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's go over to Matthew 8. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 8, verse, verse 11, excuse me. <clears throat> I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But then also notice what is said about the sons of the kingdom. Those Jews who by the law had the right to inherit the kingdom but did not appreciate its fulfillment in the appearance of of Jesus Christ. Look at that the next verse there, verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So one standing in the kingdom in the future sense would be affected by their treatment of whatever law of God that was in effect while they were alive. That's the point. So 
Our next question as we consider Jesus and his treatment or his relationship with the law of Moses, did he fulfill that law? He said that's what he came to do. Did he fulfill that law? If he did not, then his purpose failed upon this earth. Looking at Matthew 5.17. So, <clears throat> if that's the case, what would that mean as far as our relationship uh, to the law today? If he missed his objective, what would that mean for us now regarding the Mosaic law? We'd be living in violation or we would, we would have to change everything to conform to the complete keeping of that law or there would be no, no salvation for us. We would have to have circumcision. We could have, we'd have to have the dietary laws, all of those things. But we know that he did fulfill his objective. And if he did, then he accomplished his purpose. Let's look at John chapter 17. John 17, verse 4. <clears throat> I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So he did it. He fulfilled it. He accomplished it. And so, that being so, we should not be surprised since that covenant, that law... That testament has been completed, has been fulfilled. We should not be surprised to find a new law, a new covenant governing God's people today. Indeed, Jesus must have fulfilled the old law, for there have been many changes. What does it talk about in Hebrews 7, 11 through 14? It talks about the change of the priesthood. What does it talk about in 7, 18, 19, 22? just how the whole law itself was changed. As the law had foretold, it has been replaced by a new law. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. So, Jesus did fulfill it. And ultimately, he fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. But at the time that he was preaching this Sermon on the Mount and giving all these, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, all of this had not yet been fulfilled. So true to his statement in verse 19, he taught his disciples to be faithful to God's law as it then stood. But what, is, what then about these contrasts where you've heard it said, but I say unto you, that we find in 21 through 48? Are these not to be viewed as comparisons between the old and the new law? Well, here are some thoughts for us to consider along this line. And I encourage your, uh, your views, and uh, for this we can, we can pause and take some comments uh, because they'll be your own thoughts. They won't be my guiding you to give me the thought that I want you to give me. Uh, so let's make some comparisons here. Look at this contrast that Jesus is making. Many understand that Jesus was contrasting the old and the new he was comparing the law of Moses with the law of Christ, which would govern his kingdom. And in effect, what the interpretation of this is, is that the essence of Jesus' teaching was that the old law only condemned the outward actions, but that the new law introduced by Jesus condemned the inner conditions which led to the outer actions. 
Now, my understanding is, is different than that. My understanding is that the contrast is between the traditional interpretation and application of the law and the righteousness, the true righteousness of the kingdom that Jesus would require of his disciples. In fact, Jesus demonstrated that the righteousness of the kingdom was not only contrary to the manner in which the law was being interpreted, interpreted and applied, but it was in harmony with the original spirit, with the original words of the law as given to Moses and the Israelites. I'll pause here and, and take some thoughts if anyone would like to interject them. It's a contrast between the traditional interpretation and application of the law and the righteousness of the kingdom. That's how I see the contrast that Jesus is making. I, I agree with that, Steve. I think that Jesus is talking to the people the same way he would talk to us today. People usually go by the traditional understanding of the yes. Bible, what, what they've always heard the Bible teaches, but most people never really read the Bible and find out for themselves. And One example in that fifth chapter is hate your enemies. Well, there really isn't a passage in the Old Testament that says hate your enemies, but uh, mm -hmm. they could interpret it that way if right. they wanted to. Right. So yeah, I think it is your traditional understanding versus what is really the truth. Yes. Thank you. I was, this is Bill Meeks. I, uh, <clears throat> I was thinking it was the difference between the real and the facade. Sometimes a, there's a facade of righteousness, but not the real. Mm -hmm. That's why he called the Pharisees hypocrites. Got one in the back there. Thomas in the back. Oh, we got somebody over here. What came to mind is in 1 Samuel 15, latter part of verse 22, it says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Mm. This underscores that idea that the, the intent and the desire of the heart was more important than the physical action. Very good. Thank you, Thomas. Dan Huff. Dan, Dan Huff. Um, similar, I was thinking that the, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, they had made it the outward acts where God originally and, in, and intended for it to be from the heart, mm -hmm. as, as was mentioned about 1 Samuel, where God looks upon the heart. And they had left out the heart. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like those uh, Ephesians that we read about in Revelation. Yeah. Very good. Appreciate these thoughts. Any others just now? All right. Well, I'll give some support for why I'm approaching it the way that I am. Uh, for instance, the, the, former, the first one I gave you, that uh, the old law is condemning the outward action, but the new law is uh, condemning the inner condition, which leads to the outer action. That's the way some people think or, or look at what he's doing here, what, he's, what his objective is. That, that would seem very strange when you take into account what he says in verse 19 of our text. 
Jesus warned against any alteration of the commandments of the law. So that view would have Jesus doing the very thing he has just warned against. If Jesus was referring to what Moses had commanded in the law, the law itself, the real actual commandments in that law, it is likely that his wording would have been different. And it was at those times when he was addressing that particular side of things. We've noted how in Matthew 5, it's you have heard it said. But consider Matthew chapter 8, verse 4, or Matthew chapter 4, uh, 4 and 7 and 10. Matthew 8, verse 4, he says, Moses commanded. In Matthew 4, he says, it is written. And that's a difference from what he is doing here in Matthew 5. You have heard it said. So instead we find Jesus repeating phrases that, that are used in the vernacular, the religious speak of his day, the oral traditions, the interpretations, rather than the actual written word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, Matthew 5, 21 and 27. Furthermore, it has been said, Matthew 5, 31. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, Matthew 5, 33. You have heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 38 and 43. And in two of these contrasts, Jesus refers to statements not even found in the law of Moses. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment, Matthew 5, 21. And as Tom mentioned, hate your enemy in Matthew 5, 43. So he's, those are things that aren't even, those statements aren't even found in the law at all. Uh, so he's reacting not to the law itself, but to the way it was used. And as has been noted in some of the comments, the intention has always been God is after the heart, the condition of our heart. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6, and I will read verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit, on, sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's what he's always wanted. The prophets confirmed this as well. Let's go to Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah 29. And this, all of these were mentioned in, in our comments earlier. Isaiah 29, I'll read 13 and 14. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. It was a related thought that Thomas was on earlier from, from uh, the obey rather than sacrifice concept. So, concluding these matters from Matthew 5. 
Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, which he did by fulfilling its many, many prophecies. I love the, the, the prophets for showing the validity of the scriptures. Little things like, like being born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 and 2 is my favorite. Little things like riding on a donkey in the foal of a donkey. Just sometimes seemingly out of the blue statements like God is on purpose trying to help us, trying to show us that when I say something, it's true and it's going to happen. So that's what he came to do, show that that was true. And to contrast everything that he was about, everything that he taught with the traditional interpretations and applications that had been orally handed down and to demonstrate how our righteousness must indeed exceed that of the scribes and of the Pharisees. All right, now before we move on, I'll pause again if anyone wants to make a comment, but what we want to do next is, is take this and put it in the here and now because, no, we are, we are not under the Mosaic Law anymore, but we are encountering the same type of problem. Basically, there is all this out here being said. What do we answer to those you have heard it said? But before we go and make a couple of comparisons along that line, any, any thoughts from anyone? Okay. Uh, Eric Ro Owens, Prince Road. Uh, it's, it's interesting the reference to the law of Moses because it really is two different laws as far as the Old Testament. In the first giving of the law, when the Lord gives it from Sinai, it's different uh, when you see it in Exodus and, and manifested in the other books as opposed to what Moses gives the second generation before they prepare to go into Canaan in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. where uh, it is truly in Deuteronomy the law of Moses because there are some amendments that have been made in Deuteronomy that are not found in the law previous to it. And one of them, notably, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, where the, the individuals are arguing with Christ mm -hmm. that Moses commanded that the people put away their wives. And Jesus says, no, 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 Moses permitted you. And it was because, again, this, this issue of the heart the hardness of your heart, yes. that that was permitted. And I think it's telling when Jesus quotes uh, so profusely from Deuteronomy as opposed to other passages of the law is that Jesus used the, the watered-down, if you will, law that Moses saw that the people, they couldn't do what God wanted them to do, so he wanted to help them what he could Again, I think that it was uh, he, he had concern for the women as uh, more than anything because of the hardness of the heart of the men. Mm -hmm. But it's it's one of these things where they couldn't even do what Moses allowed them to do because of the the, the condition of their hearts, yeah. and that's why it's so important for for us to be attuned to this idea that it, with the new law come on. It's so important that our hearts be engaged first. Mm -hmm. Then let's look into the knowledge. Yes, thank you. And that uh, example you used is a very good example to show the effects of that hardness of the heart disease. And, of course, considering Moses also with that, um, 
he was appointed by God as God's spokesman and, and his mouthpiece. So it, what he said was law. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think uh, another good thing that Jesus is doing here, for any honest soul who's listening to Jesus, they'll realize, I haven't been doing that. Mm. The, the hating your brother in the heart. Well, I've never killed anybody, but I haven't thought about my brother in the way I should, yeah. which will lead you to Christ mm -hmm. and help you realize that it's not in the law it's in the one who fulfills the law that will find our righteousness. Yes, amen. Bill Meeks again. I have been in conversation with a person that thought that we were saying that God didn't know what he was talking about because mm. he allowed divorce. But in the New Testament, he says divorce is wrong. Didn't God know what he was talking about? Yes, God knows what he's talking about. And everything he said about that topic, he knew what he was saying. And we need to understand it. But that's not our topic for this class, so we're not going to discuss that particular topic. I do want to use some examples uh, that we can... Uh, again, we're, we're looking at the, you have heard it said. So we're going to look at some things that we hear say said uh, and, and reply to that how do we how do we respond to that well we're not the lawgiver like Jesus to be able to say I say unto you so we must look at the law that he has given us to answer those things that have been said so we answer with a, with an it is written so to illustrate this uh, let's take let's take a, a just just one example well consider that the the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were very powerful, very charismatic, very highly influential. Uh, they, they, to me, when I read about them, it seems that uh, they would be kind of hard to love, maybe in some cases, but apparently they were very popular, very, very respected, very highly loved, and we find the same thing going on today with regard to denominational leaders. And people, the way that they look to these men and women in our culture today, having this kind of influence. Now, what are they doing? They are either teaching man-made traditions, or as Jesus said, the Pharisees did, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, Matthew 15, 19, or Paul said, not giving heed to Jewish fables, commandments of men that turn from the truth. In Titus 1.14, either they're, either they're actually just coming up with something that's nothing more than a tradition of men, or they're twisting the scriptures to their and others' destruction. So there's many sayings of theirs. We have heard it said. Many have heard what they have said. Many are listening to what they have said. What they are saying is wrong. But many believe it, or many are confused by it. So let's take a subject, for example, the subject of baptism. And let's look at just one false doctrine, which is very prevalent, and it is the doctrine of infant baptism. 
The apostate church began to emerge even before the close of the New Testament. There were warnings about it. In 606 A.D., Boniface III was the first to assume the title of universal bishop or pope. And it was not until 1870 A.D. that the Vatican Council proclaimed the pope to be infallible in all of his decisions pertaining to the Roman Catholic Church. Anything that a man says that does not come from the Bible is false doctrine. And it will cause people to lose their souls. Jesus says, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. One of the doctrines and commandments of men is the doctrine of original sin, which they say a newborn baby inherits sin from Adam. So that is our, you have heard it said. You have heard that said. I know that you have. But God says unto us, for it is written in the Bible. For example, Ezekiel 18.20. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We do not inherit sin. We commit sin. 1 John 3 and 4 says, Sin is the transgression of the law. Infants do not commit sin. In order to get rid of the original sin uh, in infants, they sprinkle or pour water on them, and they call that baptism. And that's not right either, because that's not an immersion, and it's not anything about what we see in relation to that in, in the New Testament. Infants do not have any sin. They're not candidates for baptism because they cannot believe. In Acts chapter 8, 36 through 37, a question is asked and an answer is given. See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. An infant cannot believe and does not have any sin that needs to be washed away. And not only that, sprinkling or pouring is not a scriptural baptism. The original Greek word, we would probably have been better off if they had not transliterated the word, but there was some of that same pressure like we have around us today in the religious world, and that's probably why they chose that route to give a little wiggle room there and transliterate the word rather than translate it simply saying immersion, which is what it means. When a person who is sprinkled as an infant comes to the age of accountability, well, if they've been given this other doctrine, they probably think that they do not need to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, like Peter told on Acts, on Pentecost, Acts 2.38. Since he does not obey then the Lord's command to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, he still has every sin he has ever committed. He is still lost. Satan has many ways of causing people to become eternally lost. For an adult to be saved, 
in the Roman Catholic Church, they must go through a process called the RCIA, which stands for Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. There's a, it's a lengthy doctrine. We're not going to look at all of it, but when it is deemed that the person has gone through all the things that they need to go through, all that catechism, which can, which can take several years, then they are able to take the sacraments of initiation, which take place on Holy Saturday, which is this Saturday before Easter in their doctrine. Council of Trent and the Lateran Council of uh, in 1215 AD gave the priests the power to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins? God. There are many other false doctrines and commandments of men held by this particular organization, but this is what I'm talking about. When you encounter something said, we do like Jesus did when he was being tempted of Satan. We answer with the scripture. It is written. That is what we do. We've got about 15 minutes, by my count, uh, before our break. I'd like to make one more comparison now, but we're going to switch gears a little bit because we're going to talk about a completely different religion. And it's a very prevalent one, one that's gaining a lot of ground. And so I'm going to start off this by asking a question. Who is Allah? I think I heard the moon and the god of the moon. So you're on, you're on track. We're on, we're on the same page. What religion today practices the pagan rites of the moon god? Islam does. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world today. Many times it has been a violent religion in the course of its history. One in which you had one of two choices, convert or die. The religion of Islam has as its focus of worship a deity by the name of Allah. Allah was a pagan moon god in Arabia during pre-Islamic times. Don't believe what you hear. Allah never was and is not an alternate, in other words, God in the Arabic language, the God that we serve. No, that is not his name. That is not him. Moon worship has been practiced in Arabia and the Middle East since about 2000 B.C., the crescent moon is the most common symbol of this pagan moon worship. The moon god was also referred to as Al-Ilah originally, and this was not considered as a proper name for a specific god, but a generic name meaning the god, and this is kind of where they get some of their wiggle room here. But we need to understand what, what Muhammad did with this thing. Because each local Arab tribe would, would uh, refer to their own tribal pagan god as Al-Ilah, which was later shortened to Allah, or Allah, before Muhammad began promoting his new religion in 610 A.D. 
Now, what Muhammad did was very genius. What he did effectively was retained almost all of the pagan rituals of the Arabs at the temple Kaaba and redefined them in monotheistic terms. Today, Islam is a false monotheistic religion with its roots in polytheistic paganism. The Old Testament regularly forbade the worship of the moon god and other false gods. The children of Israel came out of Egypt in their bondage and they were warned in Deuteronomy 17, 3-5, a man or a woman who have been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God and tra transgressing his covenant, who have gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, then you shall bring out of your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. When Israel fell into idolatry, many times it involved moon god worship. There are remnants of pagan moon god worship in the Quran. We have examples of the Muslims swearing by the moon. Nay, I swear by the moon and the night when it departs and the daybreak when it shines. That's in Quran 74:32-34. The pagan Arab nations worshipped about 360 different gods, one for each day of their year. The moon god was a male god, and the sun god was a female goddess. The moon god was called by various names, one of which was Allah. Many Arabs believe that the moon god was the greatest of all gods, and in worshiping the moon god Allah, they prayed toward Mecca several times a day, made pilgrimages to Mecca, ran around the temple of the moon god called the Kaaba, kissed the black stone, a phallic image, by the way, killed animal sacrifices for their moon god, and fasted for the month which begins and ends with the crescent moon, just as the Muslims do today. They believed Allah, the moon god, was married to the sun goddess, and together they produced three goddesses who were called the daughters of Allah. Allah's three daughters, uh, Alat, Al-Uzah, and Manat, were viewed as intercessors between the people and Allah, and they were worshipped also in the Kaaba in Mecca. The daughters of Allah, along with Allah's wife, the sun goddess, and Allah were all viewed as high gods. When Muhammad comes along, effectively what he does is he kills off the rest of the family. And he just keeps Allah. Muhammad was raised to worship the moon god Allah. The Quraysh tribe into which Muhammad was born was particularly devoted to Allah. The literal Arabic name of Muhammad's father was Abid Allah, and his uncle's name was Obed Allah. And these names show their devotion to this deity. Muhammad's family had uh, been very centrally involved in the keeping of this temple, uh, protectors of this temple, for generation. When Muhammad proclaimed his new doctrine, there is no God but Allah, he was not trying to introduce a new god. His pagan countrymen already knew who Allah was, and they acknowledged him along with their 359 other gods. Crescent moon was an ancient pagan symbol used throughout the Middle East to represent Allah, and adopting this symbol helped Muslims to convert people throughout the Middle East 
to this new religion, which came to be known as Islam. Muhammad was born in Mecca in 570 A.D. In 610 A.D., he proclaimed himself a prophet at a temple in Mecca where these 360 other idols in this black stone were worshipped. He was kicked out for this new doctrine initially. Later he returned in 630 A.D. and captured it. He declared Allah to be the supreme God and the one true God that all men should worship. Muhammad claimed to have had a vision, a revelation that was given to him by the angel Gabriel. So Muhammad destroyed all the 360 idols at Mecca except the black stone, which they believe came from the moon. And Muslims continue to worship and kiss it today. Muhammad declared that Allah alone should be worshipped and he prohibited the worship of the daughters of Allah and he, he made this new religion. What is written? What do we say to these things? Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I'll read 13 where Moses asks the question. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's the first time that God revealed his personal name to mankind. And it is the only name that he has ever revealed to mankind by which he should be designated. Uh, in the Hebrew, there were four letters, four characters that they had to write this phrase. And those come across to us as consonants. And so we add vowels in between. And it, from the four letters, we come to Yahweh or something of that equivalent and then we we try to fit it into our language a little better and we it becomes Jehovah but that's like my name is Steve that's the name that God said was his name no other name Deuteronomy 13 Deuteronomy 18 Moses gave all of the instructions about how you will know if a, if a man is making predictions or if he is advocating practices, how you will know whether or not to listen to him. And it all came down to whose name is he speaking in? Is he saying this is what Jehovah says? Or is he advocating some other God? If he's advocating some other God, don't listen to him. You'll know if what he is saying is true, even if he attributes it to Jehovah, but it's not really something Jehovah said. You'll know whether it's true or not by whether or not it comes to pass. And in that same set of instructions, it was prophetic because Moses said, from among you, God is going to raise up a prophet. And he was referring to Jesus. And Moses said, listen to him. And he is who we listen to. Ephesians 4, 3-6 tells us there's one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church, one God who is over all, is judge of all. 
What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I think we are, well, we're five minutes. If someone has a quick comment, we'll take it. Otherwise, we'll, we'll make a record-setting thing and stop early. All right, we'll go ahead and conclude there. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, didn't see you. Just real quick, going to your previous point about original sin, just one thing to point out to others. Um, if that was true, then Jesus would have had sin. And we know in 2 Corinthians mm -hmm. five twenty-one. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's that's not true. There is no such thing as original sin. Yeah, very good. Very good. Any others? All right, we'll we'll pause it there then. Have a break.